0: Good evening to you. Second Kings chapter 20 this evening, if you're with us tonight and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. And if you just flag them down, they'll get a Bible into your hands and have it marked to where we are this evening. And you can follow along yourself with your own eyes in the study of the word this evening and get twice as much out of it, both the hearing and the reading of God's word. Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, and we pick things up in chapter 20. In the middle of the reign of a very, very good king of the southern kingdom of Judah by the name of Hezekiah, uh, one of the greatest kings. And in fact, at this point in time in Judah's history, he was the greatest king that Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, ever had, uh, second only to David. And he will probably be only exceeded by his uh, uh, descendant, a man by the name of Josiah, who will become a king uh, very late in, uh, before Judah goes into captivity to the Babylonians. This Assyrian uh, empire, the dominant world-ruling empire at the time, had invaded Judah, had taken several fortified cities, had come right to the doorstep of Jerusalem and was calling on them to surrender or to be destroyed and God stepped in and supernaturally protected uh in response to prayer uh Jerusalem Hezekiah the children of Israel and bringing a great slaughter of that uh, Assyrian military at the hands of just a single great uh, angel. It is interesting. One angel in one night killed one hundred and eighty five thousand front line talking about the greatest military in the world at that time and uh, and probably stopped and had a lunch break and everything and two breaks one of the, You know it is an interesting thing to do because there's no mention that this is like an archangel or some super duper super fantastic amazing angel. It just mentions an angel. And uh, it is fascinating to look through the scriptures and kind of a study of the angels and how amazing they are and their power and authority. And they're just servants of, uh, of the Lord and servants to us as heirs of salvation. And so we pick things up here now, continuing in Hezekiah's reign. Now, in those days, and that is uh, about the time of Sennacherib's invasion of Judah, Hezekiah was sick. And near death. So this guy's got a lot on his plate. We've been reading about these threatening letters. Excuse me. Hezekiah takes these letters into the temple. And he's praying. And he's got all the weight and pressure that's on him to make a decision. So many lives are uh, at stake related to the decisions that he's going to make and all. And that's, that's the mantle or the title that he wears as the king of Israel. But he's dealing with. Uh, a a very personal problem that's happening in his life at the same time. He has some kind of a disease. We don't know much more about it except the description that it appears to be uh, a uh, perhaps a great infection that has overcome his body or some kind of an open uh, ulcerated sore. And so uh, he thinks at this point in time, he thinks that he's just merely seriously ill But he's about to die, so he knows he's in trouble on a lot of fronts. He's carrying all of this weight and in God's call upon his life to be a king. And yet this very personal dealing with the weight of a terminal uh, illness at the same time. So there's a lot weighing on this man. And and it's interesting to know that about him again to see how he responds to it, because none of us are immune from the same things in this world where we Deal with this over here at work. We deal with this in our service to the Lord. And then on the private side, the personal side that sometimes only God knows, you know, we're carrying all of these other things, too, in our lives. And so he was in uh, uh, had some kind of an illness, a a terminal illness that brought him near to death. And and the uh, sickness has its described there. it, It is some kind of a boil or an inflamed spot. Some kind of an open ulcer and, and infection. So there's a lot happening to him. And so Isaiah, the prophet, was sent by the Lord. The son of Amos went to Hezekiah and said to him, thus says the Lord. And uh, sometimes we get a word from the Lord and we may not be excited about it. But here's one of those. And the Lord said to him, set your house in order for you shall die and not live. And so he tells him, in essence, you need to finalize your affairs because uh, you're going to go to heaven, so to speak, here uh, pretty quickly. And so the Lord tells him ahead of time that he's not going to recover, that he's going to die. And so he turned his face toward the wall. Do not think that he's pouting. So he's a king. He's on a sick bed. And uh, so he's got all these attendants in this room. And the first thing when he hears this news that he wants to do is he wants to process it with the Lord, just like us. So he wants to pray, but he's got all these people in the room and he can't run them out and all. And so he wants to be able to concentrate on the Lord in prayer. He wants to have some kind of privacy in his in talking to the Lord about all of this. And so the best thing that worked for him was just to turn, look to the wall, not think about anybody else that was in the room there and begin to pray then to the Lord. And we notice this prayer. He says in verse three, remember now, O Lord. I pray how I have walked with you in truth and that was true. I've walked with you with a loyal heart. I've obeyed your word. I've been loyal to you and and uh, not just your word but a relationship with you and I've done what was good in your sight. And so Hezekiah he wept bitterly related to these news, this news. And so obviously he's uh, uh praying and asking the Lord for uh, healing And for a longer life, clearly, he doesn't want uh, to die. And he reminds the Lord of his faithfulness and how devoted he's been, his godly life. All of that was true. Now, he's not trying to make a deal with God here, as we'll see a little bit later in verse six. Notice the Lord. Let's, let's just read verse six. The Lord is going to say to him, I will add to your days 15 years. I will deliver you f- I, and then notice, very importantly, I will deliver you and the city from the hand of the king of Assyria. So this is kind of was all going on before the Assyrian army was wiped out. And I will defend this city for my own sake and the, for the sake of my servant David. So why does the Lord say this to Hezekiah? Except that Hezekiah's motive in his prayer wasn't uh, purely selfish or God, listen, how can you? Kill me, I'm, here I am, this righteous person, and I've walked with you, and how many have walked with you, and, and if the truth be told, he doesn't say this, but in essence, you know, the second greatest king in the history of Judah next to David himself, and, and you're going to, you know, take me home at this point in time. And so he's not trying to bargain with the Lord. What he's doing here, and, and the Lord's response to him makes it clear is, He is basically saying to the Lord, and what's recorded here, and and then part of the prayer that must be beyond it, is he's concerned for the future of Judah. Uh, Lord, we're being attacked. Uh, Sennacherib is at our door. He's threatening. And if Judah falls, then what's going to happen to your name, your reputation, your glory as a result uh, of that fall. And surely, as Hezekiah had begun many spiritual reformations within the land, there was the idea that he wanted to continue those things. He's basically saying, can you let me continue to do these godly, spiritually healthy things in the history of Judah so that they aren't jeopardized at my death. And so that's what he's saying. It's not pure selfishness. He's not bargaining there. He just wants to continue what God had called him to do. Now, it is interesting to notice that once again, we have here uh, in the scriptures, we have a very, very godly man, a very godly person who is terminally ill. The Lord's going to heal him, but. Godly people do get sick in this world, as we saw with uh, uh, Elisha. And so we see it once again. And so this is the prayer that he cries out to the Lord. And it happened as Isaiah was then leaving the chamber of the king. He went out into the middle court. He hadn't gotten very far that the word of the Lord came to him saying, return and tell Hezekiah, the leader of my people. So, again, this is the basis of, of Hezekiah's prayer. Let me continue to lead your people. Thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father. I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. And surely I will heal you on the third day. You shall go up to the house of the Lord. Now, when he tells him on the third day, you shall go up to the house of the Lord. This again reveals something else in terms of what God knows about Hezekiah's heart. So here he is, he's on a sick sickbed, he's on his deathbed, uh, apart from God's intervention, and God knew that the first thing that Hezekiah would want to do if he was healed from his disease, the thing that he longed for most in life, the thing that he missed most in life because of his illness, was the inability to go to church, to be able to go to the temple. And so God gives him this word here now that I'm going to heal you. And in fact, the healing is going to be uh, so supernaturally swift that within three days you'll be off of this deathbed and you'll be able to worship me in the temple, as is the desire uh, of your heart. And I will add, as we've already seen to your days, 15 years and I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria I will defend this city for my own sake, my own reputation, which was a concern of Hezekiah and for the sake of my servant David. And then Isaiah said, take a lump of figs, uh, which is my feeling about figs altogether, except in fig Newtons. But anyway, take a lump of figs. And so they took a lump of figs, and this was very common in the ancient world as a kind of a dressing. They would put on an open wound or a boil or an infection, uh, smash up figs, and then put them inside of some kind of a cloth and then apply them uh, to porous cloth, apply them then to the wound. And so they took, they laid it on the boil or the, the eruption the infection and he recovered. And so the Lord uses uh, a medicinal thing here in order to bring the healing forth. sometimes people feel terrible that they don't have enough faith because, you know, they turn to a surgeon or they turn to the medical community or they take some kind of a medication because of his health and wealth doctrine that continues to stick around, which is amazing to me. But anyway, it does. And people continue to flock toward it and be disappointed by it. But apparently the ranks fill as quickly as people uh, depart from from it. But here you have a beautiful situation where uh, kind of a medicine is applied to it. God honors that and, and he heals Hezekiah of this uh, infection. And Hezekiah then said to Isaiah, what is the sign that the Lord will heal me and that I shall go to the house of the Lord on the third day? He's so excited about getting back to church. It's, and it is interesting. Sometimes you and having been a pastor for quite a few years. Um, To run into people that are either they uh, some kind of a physical illness in their own life or sometimes it's age and uh, not able to get out and about or sometimes not even able to get out of bed and. And you if you were to ask them and you don't even have to ask them, they would tell you this, that if they could muster their strength for one more thing to do in their life, choose one more place to go, it would be to be able to come into a church, sit among God's people in the ministry of God's Holy Spirit, worship the Lord, study the word of God together. And so what we're doing tonight is wonderful. None of us here in the room have to wait until our deathbed to appreciate Uh, The wonder of two or more gathering together in the name of the Lord and experiencing what uniquely happens in an environment like this and doesn't happen anywhere else in the whole wide world for all of its money, all of its entertainment, all of its ingenuity. And so it it is uh, beautiful and he's not the last one. To have felt it. And so he's excited about this opportunity and he asks for a sign uh, uh, of that this is going to happen. Now, the Lord isn't displeased with his request for a sign. And uh, so maybe he's asking for a sign in the light of the threat that he is facing uh, because of Sennacherib, but the Lord isn't troubled with it. And Isaiah then replied to him, this is the sign to you from the Lord, that the Lord will do this, the do the thing which he has spoken. Here's your choice, Hezekiah. Shall the shadow go forward 10 degrees on the sundial or go backward 10 degrees? So uh, in. Uh, where Hezekiah is up in, in his bedchamber, apparently he is able to see out into the courtyard some kind of a sundial. And uh, and so Isaiah tells him, all right, you want a sign from God that he's going to do this? Do you want him to make the shadow on the sundial go forward or to go backwards? Well, he could ask him to have it go forward, but it would... It would do that anyway. And, and though it would be still a miracle, it would move. It would just move ahead more quickly. So the harder of the two things is to have the, the shadow on the sundial go backwards. And so uh, that's the request that he makes. And Hezekiah said it's an easy thing for the shadow go down 10 degrees. No, but let the shadow go back 10 degrees. And so Isaiah, the prophet cried out to the Lord. And he, the Lord, brought the shadow ten degrees backwards by which it had gone down on the sundial of has And so God uh, gives him his request here. The text, and I think it's very important to uh, understand this. The text does not say that the Lord stopped the rotation of the earth, reversed the rotation of the earth, caused time to go backwards. Sometimes you see people read, they read about this miracle and you get these scientists in their mind. They just get going and it's all right. If you're going to make the sundial go back, then you're going to have to stop the rotation, bring it to a stop, cause the rotation to go backwards. They've just been watching too much Star Trek. And you've got to get this whole thing going and everything and roll back the deal. And if you did that, the oceans would go slopping out all over as you'd not only have to reverse all of these rotations of the earth, but also the sun and the universe and the whole creation and all. And so for them, it's just this thing becomes mind boggling. Um, the Lord just said here that he would move the shadow back on the sundial. So it's a localized miracle. He didn't say he was going to change all of creation that he had set in the course. It was it, he could do the other thing. I have no doubt about it. It's very easy for the creation uh, creator to do that with his creation. But basically, all he did is he just moved that back within the sight of Hezekiah so that Hezekiah uh, is a symbol that he was turning back the clock on Hezekiah's life and giving him more time uh, to live. And so uh, the, a, a miracle, nonetheless, but we don't have to make things uh, any harder than they already are on, on things. And so uh, this wonderful miracle given to confirm the faith uh, of Hezekiah, we get to chapter 12 now or verse 12 and. Uh, we run into, and it's fascinating here because we run into a failure now in Hezekiah's life. Remember, the uh, southern kingdom of Judah had eight good kings. And it's interesting that uh, seven of those eight kings failed uh, in some way that kind of marred their testimony a little bit. And, and it's included in the scripture so we can learn uh, from them. I remember years ago I was studying, you know, just in my own devotional life, I was reading through all of these things and I noticed how few the, uh, good kings there were. And then I noticed and it was completely, I think, of, of the Holy Spirit. I'm not smart enough on this stuff. And and I read and the Lord helped me to see that almost all of those uh, seven of those eight kings fell. And so he spoke to me in he, my heart and said, I want you to look and see what good kings fall for. And it's a very interesting study. I've never done it here in, in, in this church, but it is fascinating to put all of those things together and then to study the one king who was a good king who did not fail. And the reason why he didn't fail is fabulous. You would love to have me tell you right now at this moment, but I'm not going to digress. And so he does fail. it's recorded in the scriptures for us and, and our, our, our instruction, because apparently we are all of us prone to, to the same temptation. So at the time of Baradak Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, he sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that Hezekiah was sick. So. Um, you know, in those days when you would hear about a king that was about to die in another country. Well, that that news spread throughout all of the countries because that would destabilize the region. So, OK, King so-and-so is going to die immediately. The other kings would want to know because these are the ramifications nationally, internationally of of that death. And so that word spread all the way over to uh Babylon. Babylon and this Baradok Baladan, Babylon was a thorn in the side of Assyria the whole time that they reigned. The Assyrian Empire did dominate and conquer the Babylonians, but there was always the Babylonian fighting against that uh, that conquest. And finally, in 722 B.C., this Baradoc Baladan, he broke off the yoke of Assyria and he established his own independence. And of course, the Assyrian Empire is going to give way to the Babylonian Empire. So the Babylonian Empire is beginning now to ascend in power. This king of Babylon is looking for allies in the region that had not aligned with Assyria and so they might be, join a confederation to fight against the Babylonian Empire. And so there's part of all of this that's going on. So he's heard that Hezekiah is healed. Looks like he's going to live a few more years. Maybe he can become a valuable ally in bringing down the Assyrian Empire. And uh, so he sends these uh, letters and gifts to Hezekiah to congratulate him on uh, this healing in his life. And Hezekiah, he was very happy to receive the attention. He was attentive to them Uh, when they came. He showed them all Uh, And notice that word all all the house of his treasure showed him all of the silver and the gold and the empire, the spices, the precious ointment, showed him all of his army, showed him the entire armory, showed him, showed him all of the physical material wealth of the nation and then showed them uh, the complete military. I mean, no king in their right mind in a fallen world. Shows potential enemies all of your wealth and the extent of your military. It's just not a wise thing to do. He probably did it thinking that they want an ally against Assyria. So I will show them what we could bring to the table in becoming an ally to them. But he makes a great mistake In doing this, and we're told, so he shows all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house, palace, or in all of his dominion, everything under his reign that Hezekiah did not show them. So he gets done doing all of this. And Isaiah, the prophet, he Came to King Hezekiah and he said to him, what did these men say and where did they come from to you? Hezekiah said, oh, they came from a far country. I mean, they won't be any problem for us. They came from Babylon. They're the next world ruling empire and you're on the menu. So so they came from a far country from Babylon. And he said. What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered and he said, they have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And then Isaiah said to the Lord, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house And what your fathers have accumulated to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, uh, says the Lord, and they will take away some of your sons who will descend from you. Uh, They're going to conquer the land. They're going to make the the highest in in Judah to be their servants. Those whom you beget, they will be eunuchs, servants in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so Isaiah brings this uh, very sobering news uh, to uh, Hezekiah, the uh, interesting thing uh, in all of this, in terms of the lesson related to Hezekiah, and it's a valuable lesson, we know that Hezekiah's motives behind showing everything in his palace, everything in the land, all of the wealth, his entirety of his military, it wasn't in order to bring glory to the Lord, but it was in order to, it came out of his own pride. There's a parallel passage here in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 32, which goes into this side of things a little more thoroughly than we have here. And we're told there that after Hezekiah experienced this uh, victory over the Assyrians, after he had been healed his, and, and enjoyed considerable prosperity from the Lord, his heart got lifted up in pride. And and so we're told there that the Lord then withdrew from him in order to test him that he might know all that was in Hezekiah's heart. And so the Lord was testing Hezekiah in this situation to allow him to see what was in his heart. And the answer, unfortunately, was pride. I want you to notice there in verse 15, Hezekiah answered and he said, they have seen All that is in, and then you can circle that word, my, my house. There is nothing among, and there's that word again, my treasures, but I have not shown them. The Lord had allowed that envoy to come, and when it came, the Lord just pulled back from Hezekiah uh, to test him. And to see who Hezekiah would give the glory to for all that God had done. And apparently, as Hezekiah was giving his tour of the church property or of uh, your business or your home or however this applies to our lives or, and, and giving them a tour of Jerusalem and and all, he's flattered by all the attention that he's getting from the Babylonians and And here's this, you know, great Babylon, and under the influence of his pride and of his vanity, he begins to take credit for what God had done. He sees this, all of this is something that belongs to him. Rather than something that belongs entirely to God, that he is merely a steward over. Rather than seeing himself as a steward of something that belongs to God, that he for a time has been given a position of overseeing, he sees himself now as the owner of this. He sees himself, his wisdom, his expertise, his position as the one who has uh, produced all of this within the land, all of this great uh, fruitfulness And so this is his attitude. This is his pride. And the problem with all of it is that any glory or any credit that we receive or that we accept is glory that the Lord doesn't receive. And that's serious business. The Bible says the Lord doesn't share his glory with anyone. And so here Hezekiah makes that mistake. So Hezekiah comes to a place and he's been around for a while and usually, you know, whatever your ministry is or you're younger in life or whatever it is, and you walk with the Lord and God prospers and he blesses. And most often that happens and even happens materially. And and uh, but certainly it can happen in terms of reputation and a lot of different things. And what can happen after a period of of time is now we can begin to have an explanation for all of these blessings in our life uh, that is an explanation other than the grace of God for the fruitfulness of of our lives. And that's what Hezekiah had. I remember Gail Irwin telling a story. I've told it many times before. But again, as I've said uh, fairly frequently, until I can get a better illustration on any particular subject, I will continue to use the same illustration uh, and and until it's it's supplanted. And so if you get tired of this one, you have a better one. Just send just email it to me and I'll be happy to use it. But in all seriousness, As it's been one of the great protections against this temptation of, of Hezekiah, God has used it in my own life. And I think it's valuable for all of our lives because this applies to everyone on one level or another. And he spoke about the fact that earlier in his ministry... He was the editor of a magazine or he was involved in a magazine where they would send it. was a, it was a Christian magazine. They would send him around different parts of the United States and they would do special articles on whatever was the fastest growing church in America or in that particular denomination. He would go and he would do an article on it and everybody would know about it would be in the magazine and everything. So he did one on this particular church in the south. And uh, and then one day in the course of his travels, he was in a hotel room and he flipped on the television, on the Christian television. And there was this pastor being interviewed and the guy that was interviewing him asked him uh, what he ascribed all of this great growth to in terms of the church and the rapid growth and the blessing and all. And Gail said he thought to himself, if he has any other answer than the grace of God, it's over. And Gail, in his own words, said he did have a different answer than the grace of God. And within a year, that church was back to its former size. God will not share his glory with anyone. And, and Hezekiah here is going to learn, uh, you know, the same uh, lesson. If I have any other explanation for the fruitfulness of my life, our lives, other than the grace of God, it's the beginning of of the end. And so we say, who's getting glory for our lives? And of course we know the answer. We, we, ought, we know what the, uh, to hand the test out. We know what the correct answer is. All right. It's multiple choice. There's six things there. One of them is the Lord. <laughs> no brainer, the Lord. But a little bit beyond just the Naga knowledge, but really down in our hearts, and it's a good thing to search us. If you own a business, Or you have a certain expertise where you work for someone else, but it's it's given you great favor in that place. You have a a great love and affection for people, and it's translated into changed lives by the grace of God. Whatever it might be, we can know to give God the glory, but there's this funny thing about this flesh, this fallen nature, that after a while we can begin to think, well, yes, it's the Lord, but you know, I've really worked hard. Or you know, I I I I really am a little more of this or a little more of of that than everybody else in this area, and we begin to think that what has happened here, the prosperity spiritually and otherwise in our life, that it traces back somehow to us. And it's the beginning of the end because, again, the Lord won't share his glory. And if he's sharing his glory, even within our hearts, then he's going to have to humble me. He's going to have to humble us like he did with Hezekiah to drive home the point that everything that we are and everything that we have, it has come from the Lord. I like when Paul rebuked thee and it's a needed rebuke for all of us that those proud saints at Corinth in light of the fact that we're prone to this he said for who makes you to differ one from another and what do you have that you did not receive and now if you did indeed receive it why do you boast as if you had not received it? everything that we have has come from the Lord Uh, The ability to have the steady hand of a surgeon, the ability to work in electronics, the ability uh, to work in sales, the ability to minister and all the different callings that God. Calls us to some of these callings are uh, rewarded with greater wealth in this world, in the United States of America, than other callings. But everything that we have has come from the Lord. So they come in and he's showing them all of this kind of stuff. And why does he show, say, this is the reason for our greatness? Look at all of our wealth. Look at all. Look at our military when he knows for a fact that the real source of greatness in Judah was their relationship with God their repentance and turning back to God the reforms that Hezekiah had brought in and so when Hezekiah meets them in this way and and he comes in and he's going to show them all the greatness what he is communicating to them is this is the source of our greatness rather than sitting down and sometimes we can be prone to do the same thing we want to impress the, Babylon. We want to uh, impress, you know, the bigwigs of Babylon, of the world. And so they come and somebody says, well, how do you explain this and what and how have you done this? And then this has happened and tell me a little bit about that. And we want to impress them. And so we begin to talk about our degrees. We begin to talk about our accomplishments. We begin to talk about our SAT scores. We begin to talk about our athletic ability or whatever it might be. But the fact of the matter is for us as Christians, the real source of our greatness for any greatness we have is our relationship with the Lord. And to the degree that we point people to those other things is the degree to which we are making people think that we're great because of those things rather than the God that we serve and the God that we love. Hezekiah, which would have been much better to have just sat down with them, not showed them a single thing. And said, Do you want to know about the greatness of Judah? Do you want to know why you want us to become an ally to you? Do you know, want to know why we are attractive to you on a national and international level? It's because of the God that we serve, because of his greatness, of his grace, his faithfulness, and then they would have left with a right understanding of the greatness of Judah, and been turned to God. But he doesn't do that. So he fumbles here. And it's an area where we're all prone to fumble, to begin to think in our mind. I have this, I have that, I have that, on the basis of I, me, my, verse 15. When it's all God, it's all God in our lives. I can't tell you how many people I have known through the years in this city and beyond, who have frittered away fortunes under their own great wisdom and great talent. God blessed them. God gave them favor. It was incredible what God was doing. But some little thing got going in their mind that they began to think that it was because of them and not the Lord. And you turn around, and in two years, they have nothing. And God will do it to bring us back to realizing where our true greatness is found. It's so, such a valuable lesson. Hezekiah then said, verse 19, to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, Will there not, uh, will there not be peace and truth at least in my days? And so, Hezekiah, as he, uh, you know, speaks this thing, uh, uh, concerning uh, what the Lord is going to do here and all, he uh, repented of his pride. We know uh, from Second Chronicles, and basically he's saying he's, it's not a case of him looking and saying, "Oh, well, great, bring it on." But at least it's not going to happen as long as I'm alive. You just go this. <laughs> you know, that's, but that's not where he's coming from. He, he's basically saying, you know, what the Lord is prescribing here is it's good. It's just. I won't fight against it. I won't complain uh, against it. So he humbly accepted the fact that God's judgment would come upon the nation and that it wouldn't be a reflection on God's goodness when it did come, but on the nation's sin. And he was just grace, grateful as any of us would be uh, that there would be at least peace and security uh, in his Lifetime. And so that's what's behind his explanation here. And the rest of the acts of Hezekiah, all of his might, how he made a pool and a tunnel and brought water into the city, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? And so Hezekiah rested with his fathers, and then Manasseh his son reigned in his. Place And so uh, this great king, again, the second greatest king of Judah up to that point in time, uh, dies and mention is made of this uh, public work project that he made known as Hezekiah's tunnel, uh, where water was brought. A spring of water was outside of the walls of Jerusalem. And so they kind of covered that over from within Jerusalem. One thousand seven hundred and seventy seven feet through solid stone. Uh, They he constructed a tunnel from within the city uh, all the way out to that uh, spring of water in order that there would be a water supply in case of siege within Jerusalem. And so they worked it just like kind of doing the railroads. They worked it from both ends and they hit in the middle following the strata of the rock. It's anytime you take a trip to Israel, that's a part of the trip An amazing uh, feat. Uh, it, it, that occurred during his uh, reign. And if you go on a trip to Israel, uh, you, you can even walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. And uh, we always give a free day on the trip. And so if people want to do that, they can do that. I've never heard of anyone on our trip doing it. Other, I've heard of other people doing. The water's about waist high. And it's like uh, uh, folding yourself in some spots uh, down into the lower cabinets in your kitchen and uh, making your way through. I'm a little claustrophobic, so I don't even like to see the pictures of it online. I've never been tempted by it, and uh, but you can do it, and it is really amazing. Now, chapter 21, we want to go some distance into this uh, before we get into communion. Now, Manasseh, uh, the, the son of... Hezekiah. He was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was uh, Hephzibah. So he reigns 55 years longer than any of the the kings of Israel. And he's going to completely waste it. He's just a ter- he's the monster. He's is a terrible human being, and and he's going to he's going to be king. He's going to be president for 55 years. You can't get rid of the guy. And so this is a a bad thing. You don't like to see it coupled with what comes next in verse two. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we're told the details of the evil of his reign, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He when God cast the nations out before the children of Israel. In order to give the land of Canaan to them, he brings all of those practices back into the land. It's like there was no conquest of the land. It's just uh, uh, terrible, the the, uh, wickedness that he brings into the nation. Again, here you have a bad king following a good king. You have a bad son of a good father. And again, what adult children do with the godly heritage that they've been given in their Uh, in their childhood, that's never a reflection on the parents. Kids hit 18 in this culture. They'll do whatever they want with what uh, Christian parents have sown into their life. That now becomes a reflection upon them and not the parents. And so often people think, well, what did they do wrong? And what this and that, all that kind of thing. But the nice thing about it is how often a person, and it's my own testimony, though I didn't go out and be a monster, but I was raised in the things of the Lord for enough time, in my youth and I got uh, to a place where I left the house and uh, and didn't you know want to go and partake of all the sins of the world. But I wanted to go out and just do my own thing. And I found out that I wasn't as smart as God and I wasn't as smart as my Sunday school teacher. And I realized after a few short years I needed to get back to the Lord. And so we're always happy When those kind of happy endings uh, occur and sometimes how often we think about it, some of you in this room as well, you go out this godly heritage that you've been given and you go out and do all of this stuff and, and different things and explore and all. And then you realize what in the world have I done here? And you go back. To the good things that your parents built into your lives, and so, his, but this is the the man that he was. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. All of these places of idolatry. Hezekiah went in and he spent his whole life destroying all of that idolatry. His boy comes in and builds it all back again. Come here, come here, come here, come here. Why are you all that? I mean, how disheartening would that be? To have your son follow you, you give him the privilege of following you. You give him the platform. You give him the resources. You give him the position. And then he uses it to destroy your everything that you did. And that's what he does. Everything that Hezekiah tore down of evil, Manasseh rebuilds. Everything that Hezekiah built up that was good, Manasseh comes in and tears it down. This is these are these are, you know, these uh, negatives of one another. And so he rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal, and he made a wooden image as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and he worshipped all of the host of heaven, and he served them. So horoscopes, astrology, the worship of all of that stuff and the demons behind it, he he introduces it back into the land. He also built altars in the house of the Lord. So this is... This is a man who is deliberately evil. He is blasphemously evil. He could take and bring in all of his idolatry, all of his wickedness and say, all right, but I'm not going to cross the line and do this stuff at the temple. I'm not going to put it in the courtyards of the temple. I'll fill in all the land, but even I won't cross the line of desecrating the temple. He doesn't have any kind of an interior conscience, an inside barrier at all. He goes right into the area of the temple and he builds these altars in the place of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem, I will put my name. And he built altars for all of the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord he also made his son pass through the fire he offered one of his sons to the god of molech by rolling the baby down into the fire which uh, you know what what kind of a god demands you to do that to your child I mean we're thinking it's demonic the guy's just totally demonic that you would do something like that And then he practiced soothsaying, used witchcraft, consulted spiritists and mediums, and so he just fills the land uh, with the occult. Just think about being in a nation where, I mean, everywhere you turn, it's just all of these people in every street corner, every block has these... Uh, people that are demon-possessed and engaged in the spiritual realm in this way, and, and he gives them the room to prosper, and he did much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke the Lord to anger. And then you notice, you think, oh my, how could it get worse? It gets worse. Notice verse 7, he even. Oh no, I don't want to know, I don't want to know. He even? After that? Yes, you don't want to know, but it's in the Bible, so I'm going to tell you. He even set a carved image of Asherah, which he had made in the house of the Lord. He puts this in the temple, and the Asherah was basically an obscene image, Uh, this great wooden image. He takes it and he puts it right inside of the temple of which the Lord had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I mean, he just takes us right into the holy area. And I will not make the feet of Israel wander any more from the land which I gave their fathers only if they are careful to do according to all that I have commanded them and according to all of the law that my servant Moses commanded them. And so we've sung of the holiness of God here even tonight And he takes this and he puts this obscene image in the holy area of the temple. I mean, it's just jaw-dropping wickedness. Just terrible. But they paid no attention. Boy, does that describe the world today. Not paying attention to where their leaders and the evil their leaders are leading them into. The abandonment of God, God's definitions of right and wrong and good and bad. We're smarter than God. We're all of this and we're going to lead the world into a new kind of way. I mean, what kind of arrogance and pride is that? They can't even match their socks in the morning and they're going to get rid of God. And so but this is the pride and, and the people aren't paying any attention and Manasseh introducing this they're happy to have it so and so Manasseh seduced them to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. Israel at this point is more wicked than when the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and all of the uh, all of the otherites that were in the land and their terrible practices were were there. He has taken them lower still. And the Lord then spoke by his servants, the prophets. He warned them of a coming judgment. Isaiah was one of the prophets ministering at that time. Because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly than all the Amorites who were before him, and has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord. So these prophets are warning Manasseh concerning the judgment uh, to come. And uh, and it's it uh, tradition has it that Isaiah and it's only tradition we don't know for sure. But in 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 the Hall of Fame in the book of Hebrews, where it talks about uh, faithful saints being sawn in two, that's that was a real persecution meted out against God's people in the Old Testament. And and tradition holds that it was Manasseh who silenced the prophetic voice of Isaiah by sawing him in half. And we'll see in a moment that it's not inconceivable because of the amount of innocent blood that was shed during his reign. And so he warned, because Manasseh, king of Judah, has done these abominations, he has acted more wickedly. Oh, I already said that. Therefore, verse 12, thus says the Lord God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such calamity upon uh, Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both his ears will tingle. The judgment's going to be so bad. Just hearing about the judgment, not even the judgment itself, just to hear about the judgment is going to be such that it makes your ears uh, tingle. You have a physical reaction to it. How many of you have ever experienced this? Where you have heard some piece of news that is so disturbing to you that you have a physical reaction. And like your head gets stopped up and there's like a ringing in your ears as a result. So and just raise your hand if anybody's had anything like that. Good. I thought I was on my own this evening. So some of us have heard some really bad news in life. Or even if you're a kid and you're just being sent to the principal's office, that's bad news on, on its own relative little thing. But where there 's that physical reaction God's saying, I'm going to bring a judgment that just to hear of the judgment is going to make people's ears tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem, the measuring line of Samaria and the plummet of the house of Ahab. I'm going to put a, 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 a line up for for measuring line and, and anything that's crooked, uh, if it's become like the northern kingdom of Samaria in Judah, I'm going to wipe out, which is basically all the land because it's filled with idolatry. I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish. After Thanksgiving, you wipe everything off the dish into the garbage can. Don't put it down in the sinker. You're going to be calling the Roto-Rooter man and put all that grease down there. Got to be stewards of God's money. So anyway, but you take you and you wipe off those dishes till there's nothing left. And that's what God is saying. I'm going to displace you out of this land because of your sin until there's nothing left. Within uh, the land. And he would do that to the Babylonians. And I will forsake the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies, and they shall become victims of plunder to all of their enemies. Enemies, because they have done evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their father came out of Egypt, even to this day. And moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood. He just started killing godly people. This was state sponsored terrorism in the ancient world. Anybody that was saying, standing up to him on a a righteously on the basis of the word of God, he just killed him. And to such a degree that he filled Jerusalem from one end to the other with the blood. I mean, he's just a monster. Besides his sin by which he made Judah sin in doing evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the rest of the acts of Manasseh and all that he did and the sin which he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles? of the kings of Judah, and so Manasseh rested with his father and was buried in the garden of his own house, in the garden uh, of Uzzah. Then his son Ammon reigned in his uh, place. One of the interesting things to realize concerning uh, Manasseh, and we don't uh, get it here in Second Kings, but again, this is an area of one king's life that is a little more fully elaborated on in the book uh, of Second Chronicles. And we find out from the account of his life in Second Chronicles that he was ultimately taken captive uh, the, uh, by the Assyrian Empire. He was taken in, in bondage back to uh, Assyria. We're told there that he was Uh, Hooks were put on him. He was bound with bronze fetters and carried off to Babylon, that section of Assyria. And when he got to Assyria and was in all that condition, and he began to meditate upon his life and upon his decisions, he repented. He repented. He realized that he had made a terrible mistake in how he had spent his life and in the sin that he had led a whole nation into. The beautiful thing about Manasseh is that in his repentance, the, it was demonstrated by the fact that the king of Assyria allowed him to return to Judah and to become the king once again. And he spent every hour of the remainder of his life as the king of Judah trying to undo all of the damage that he had done. Wiping out the idolatry, bring, cleansing the area of the temple, all of these things that he had spent his life doing. And it's one of the, to me, one of the great pictures of repentance in the entire Bible. You think about how many people are in that place in life in this world, where they're raised with this godly heritage or maybe not that heritage. Something happens, they go into bondage, some kind of a deal where they're in a place and they begin to rethink their life. And they say to God, God, if you would give me one more chance, I will use every waking moment of the remainder of my life To stand against everything I stood for earlier in my life and to undo the damage that I had once done to people and to that nation. And God gave them the chance. And to his credit, he used that opportunity to do just that among uh, the people of the children uh, of Judah. And it's one of the, to me, one of the greatest examples of God's grace. In all of the Bible. And I love it. I love the story of Manasseh. He was a monster. The kind of monster people make documentaries about. And God changed his life completely. I love happy endings. (laughs) Because my life happens to be a happy ending life. Because of my faith in Christ. And so it is with you. And so tonight as we partake of the symbols of Jesus'